everyone. Welcome back to The Screenwriting Life. I'm Meg LaFove. And I'm Lorianne McKenna. A lot of our listeners ask about managing finances when you're a professional creative or emerging writer want to be creative manifester person. So we brought in an expert to discuss this with us, Paco de Leon. Paco is an author, illustrator, podcast host, and the founder of the Hell Yeah Group and bookkeeping agency for creatives called Hell Yeah Bookkeeping. In addition to her book, Finance for the People, her work has been featured in the New York Times, Time Magazine, and Bloomberg. Paco's work focuses on overcoming discomfort, fear, and shame around finances. Hi, Paco. Hi, thank you so much for having me on today. I'm really excited to chat with you two. Awesome. Awesome. Thanks so much for coming. Um, Can't wait to chat with you. But before we do, we're going to dive into our weeks or what we like to call adventures in screenwriting. We'll let Lorian start. How was your week? It was good. The highlight of my week was getting a chance to talk to the person who won a consult with me at the Austin Film Festival party we had for the screenwriting life. So it was really cool to hear his ideas and um, help him decide what he was going to send to me to work with me on. So, you know, I like to dig a little deep. I think he was a little surprised. <laughs> I bit did like a little mini workshop with him. You know, what do you want? What's your big dream? So I could help him figure out like which version of what he wanted to work with me on. So that was really, really fun. And things like that are always really inspiring for me because I can get really lost in my own drama with all my projects and where they are and what am I doing? But then talking to another writer, right? The point of the show, You Are Not Alone, sort of reminds me that we're all in that space. And so reaching out to someone else, talking to them, listening, not just talking um, is really grounding in a way. So it inspired me to sit down for a little bit and work on some of my own shit, writing shit, not emotional drama stuff, which is (laughs) full time all the time. But it was just really good to connect with another writer who is doing the same work I'm doing, right? Working on the big dream, trying to figure out what to do next. So awesome. Paco, how was your week? Oh, you know, the ups and downs of trying to get back into writing. I've been just torturing myself with a book proposal for like over a month now, just tinkering on it a little bit. And, you know, you guys know sometimes I leave that morning writing session feeling stoked. And sometimes I'm like, who wants this? So, you know, just uh, <laughs> trying to yes. figure that out. But yeah. but I have been writing more short, like blog posts, which is, you know, shorter form. So that feels nice just to get those reps in and, you know, just, uh, yeah, clacking away early morning on the keyboards. I love that you said get those reps in. Like it's <laughs> like an right. exercise regimen. Like, okay, I did 35 lines today. That sounds it's a little true though. Yeah. It's so good. Working the muscle. Yeah. You don't want it to yeah. atrophy. That's so good. I'm doing the same, except I, um there I I have I'm on a deadline. Uh so it's a little bit more intense. Um, but uh you know, but it's the same because I'm literally swinging between I love this so much. Does anybody ever want this? They're gonna be like, what the hell is this? Do you not understand what the job was that you took? Right. Like it's literally swinging around because I'm getting close to turning it in. So it's really starting to all those like munchy doubts are are rising up. And it got to the point where 
We got ma- ma- notes from my manager. And, you know, of course, he found a hole, which he should, because that's what I want him to do. But then, of course, you spiral a little bit because you're like, oh, my God, but I got this do. And I got to fix this hole. But, of course, the hole is going to just get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger underneath. And I ended up, I found myself, and I'm doing this with a, a partner, Joe Forte, and we found ourselves on Chat GPT, which not to write it, but to do research, like just to, we were, because we could not figure out, we know what we want emotionally, but how to make that external it was such an internal thing that we want to have happen to the character in the climax, but it has to be externalized. But so much of it is not acting finally, not being impulsive. So suddenly we're saying to ChatGPT, like, name name 10 movies in this genre that are about trust and what they do, the climax. And we did all this stuff. And at first I was like, this is genius. Look at all these movies. These are so inspiring. And then, of course, it named Inside Out as one of the examples. And I was like, wait a minute, what it's summarizing <laughs> is totally wrong. Like that isn't the climax at all. And then I was like, oh my God, it doesn't know what it's saying. It doesn't know. But at least there were some sa- movies to go watch now. Like I don't think it knows how to break it down and give you action even or summarize. It's more like, oh, these have this theme in it. We can go watch the climaxes of those movies. And that was helpful then to go and watch those movies and their climaxes. But it was just so funny <laughs> to use ChatGPT in my own way. I'm trying to learn AI without teaching it. Um, and the other thing I would say, like in terms of this seesaw effect, you know, it's about the script, of course, and the work that's in front of you. But and I think this speaks to what we're going to talk about today. It can bleed. It can bleed into bigger things like. Um, uncertainty versus dream and ambition or uncertainty versus where I want to go and what do I want next, both for myself and as a writing team and for my family, which then can bleed into finances, <laughs> right? Like it, it kind of always ends up with the money, like, cause some part of me is like, I just want to take a year off and re- like, we just had a wonderful director on the show and he was like, I researched trains for three months at the New York public library. And I was like, wait, 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 how do I get to do that? How do I get to do that? What financial situation do I have to be in so that I could go and research for three months? So that's my question to you, Paco. How? How do I get to go <laughs> research trains for three months financially? Anyways, I'm just I'm just doing a little segue here in terms of, you know, that emotional relationship we have to money. And we're all creative beings, so we're all very sensitive and emotional and super intellect or whatever it is, the gift from the muses that we have. And we're great at creating stories. And I think we create stories around our money too. And I would just like to start there in terms of, from what I've heard you speak, you have kind of an insight into that kind of the stories we create around money. Yeah. So I have a background in financial planning, wealth management, and business consulting. And when I first started those jobs as a bright-eyed bushy-tailed 20-something, I thought, I will simply provide these individuals with the information that they need. Surely, once I give them the information, surely they will make the right decisions when it comes to their finances. And I quickly learned within these meetings where, you know, we'd be sitting across the table from a couple and, you know, this is a tired trope, but, you know, the husband who earns a lot and the wife who spends a lot and just navigating those dynamics. I would show the part, both partners, this is what the budget looks like. You know what you need to do, right? <laughs> Yet months would go by, we'd have another quarterly meeting and the behaviors wouldn't change. And so I quickly learned 
that it's not about just having the right information, right? Having the right information is necessary. It's important. Doing practical things is the action step that will help you get towards your financial goals. But the thing I've learned working with lots of different people from different backgrounds, different careers, is that we're all super weird about money. Like we all have this story about how it works in the world, right? A lot of us figured out, we pieced it together through our upbringing. You know, we saw how our grandparents were with money. Maybe we saw how an aunt and uncle were with money. Certainly saw how our caretakers were with money. And we started to piece together how we believe it works in the world, whether or not people like us, right? Do people like me and my family deserve money? Or maybe we're, we're not the kind of people that deserve wealth or deserve, you know, um, financial, you know, freedom, or at least not being financially fragile all the time. And the caveat there is like, you know, beliefs are not everything, right? Mm -hmm. Inequality exists and racism exists and natural disasters exist. There's all these terrible things, these external factors that we cannot control. But the reason why I think it's so important to focus and zero in on the narratives you spin is because that's like the one of very few things that you can control. So why not control the hell out of it, right? Really dive deep. And it can affect your relationships. Like I am in a relationship. I approach money with abundance. It's just, I'm like, well, figure it out. I'll figure it out. It'll come. I'll get a job. I'll do what I'll figure it out. And I wouldn't say I'm a big spender, but I don't, I don't get tied up about it. Whereas I think my husband approaches it with scarcity, Mm -hmm. you know, it's even when we might have had a big job, it's still scarcity. So it, it can affect your relationship too. those different narratives within the relationship. Yeah, absolutely. It can become a prickly subject, definitely. And I think especially in partnership, you really have to take the time to understand where you're coming from and being gracious with yourself. And I think that's probably the first step. And then once you can do that, once you realize, you know, actually what you believe is somewhat malleable, uh, then I think when you look at your partner, you know, instead of feeling frustrated about the stories that they're weaving in their minds, whatever song is playing on repeat in their head, just recognize that, you know, maybe they're feeling a little trapped in that spiral and uh, being a little bit compassionate, I think goes quite a long ways. What are some tools you can use in terms of conversations? Because I have a very complex relationship with money uh, because of how I grew up, very poor. And then, you know, being Gen X, right? Being very resourceful. And then uh, being neurodivergent, I fuzz out whenever we talk about money. I just fuzz out. Like me paying bills is a Herculean event. Like I have to pay bills, right? It is a, and then it's a painful thing. And um, so there's so much tied into it, but it's this, what you're talking about, this belief system about my relationship with money, but it's so tied into like fear and panic. And if I just put it away and don't look at it, it's not a real thing. Right. Yeah. How do we get to like, how do do people get to what their belief systems even are? Right. Like we might think we know what they are, but that might not even be what's actually operating in our heads. It could all be unconscious. Right. Like how do you, how do we start to define our belief systems around it and then tools to change it? All right. You guys are writers. How do you, how does a character that you're developing you know, like how do th- how does that character and what they believe and then their subconscious behaviors in that world spill out onto the script, right? So it's now kind you're of- asking us to talk about lava, which is something we talk about on the show, which is having to investigate ourselves through our characters, right? And character journey. And I'm like, what? No, 
how come everything comes back to that? No, I, I really value this. I, I well, think it's wounds. Really it's right. money wounds, yeah. right? Yes. It's money wounds. And like you said, at the start, you were taught money. So to me, like if I was writing a character who had money wounds, which, you know, whatever, they have wounds, I would be like, where did they learn it? What was the, what's the voice in their head? Um, I guess I would go to, uh, you know, intuitively, my mother's, uh, you know, hid everything she bought from my father. So we would go shopping and then she would be like, don't tell your father. And then she'd like shove it away until she could slowly bring it out and he wouldn't notice she got something new. My father would always be like, what are you doing? I don't care. You have a budget. Like he just didn't understand it. So uh, I don't know what to do with that. I don't know how that impacts me, but I would go to how my parents version of how they dealt with bills and money. I don't know. That's what I would do in terms of uh, a characters. How the how where did it where did they start? Yeah, so I would probably say that maybe that character who is hiding what they're spending probably has some maybe shame around spending or maybe we can explore this idea of, of worthiness. Does that character feel like they cannot make purchases that do they not feel worthy of 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 purchases that I don't know make them feel a certain way or are th- were they are they concerned with maybe thinking that what they're interested in or, you know, the things that they want to spend money on are, are frivolous. And I guess it could be tangentially related to, to worthiness, but do they feel some kind of way about frivolity or something like that? Um, let's see. What else? What else comes to mind when I think of somebody who's hiding what they're purchasing? Or uh, what, you know, Lori, do you? Because my mother's dead. Like she's not, she's not hiding purchases um, anymore. And I do hide occasionally a purchase. I do. Out of uh, weird conditioning so i'm going to think about that but lauren do you i um i grew up uh with very, not much at all right and so my relationship to money now is that i have these impulsive things right i have no money i'm trying to be like save 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 pay all my bills i do all the thing and then i'm like you know what i'm going to fucking go to paris and spend 5 fucking thousand dollars you know i deserve it why should i sit around and it's not really I deserve it. It's more like um, it's like the it's like the black and white of it. The the withhold, 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 withhold. God damn it. I'm punishing myself. Now I get to reward myself somehow. You know, it's like binge spending. I was in a say, way. It's like I do with cookies. Yeah, I do. It with, <laughs> it's binge eating. It's binge spending. And I don't do it that often. But it feels very like there's a you know what? No one can tell me what to do with my money. I earned it, you know, and it, but it, it's so emotional and it's so about my, my place in the world, what I deserve. Um, and then, you know, do I deserve it? It, it? It's very, and then there's all the fear in it and everything. And I don't do this often and I never regret it. That's I good. never regret spending money on a trip. And I don't do small things, you know. Well, that's not true. Sometimes I do the late night. I need these shoes and these shoes and these shoes. And then they all come and then I send them back. (laughs) So Paco, given that, if Lorian, Lorian fusses out when she has to do her bills, she's a bit of a binger occasionally, but she doesn't regret the binges. How would you help her? Because I think a lot of creatives are this way, by the way, this fuzziness that comes around. How would you, what are the steps you would take if you were working with her to help her, you know, get some clarity around it and not be so fuzzy? 
You yeah. didn't know this was free financial counseling, did you? <laughs> we are going to get to other questions, but this is it's storytelling. Come on. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I know think- a lot of a lot of writers and other creators often have the it's a very ADHD relationship to money and spending. So I know I'm not the only one. I mean, I can definitely relate to what you're saying. So I want to say I'll start with that and say that I often you know, there was a time in my young adulthood where I was very, very broke. I was a broke financial planner and I was riding my bike to work here during rush hour here in Los Angeles where there's all these cars out and it's a very dangerous you know, place to be on your bike. I was riding my bike to and from work every day. And that was a 15 mile commute total. So seven and a half miles one way, seven and a half miles back to save $40 on gas. I don't think that's a bad thing for a lot of people to be doing. But again, in Los Angeles, with the amount of cars when I was riding, maybe not the safest move. The other thing which I was doing, which was absolutely not saving me any money, was growing my own lettuce because I would go to like Trader Joe's. I'm like, oh, two dollars. I could save two dollars by growing my own lettuce. No, you're planting it. You're watering it. uh, And that alone is not going to save you money. So I was making these weird negotiations to try to figure out how to make my little paycheck stretch out instead of doing more of the internal digging of like, why am I, how am I being complicit in my own struggles here? And why is that? And for me, what I've uncovered was this pattern of struggle. Like that's something, sorry, what I uncovered then was my like my lack of worthiness. And I attributed that to you know, growing up queer and like the main signal growing up queer was like in Catholic school was you're fundamentally flawed. The way that you are, the way that you're made is just not, it's not good. It's not right. You're not good enough. And so that has translated in a lot of different ways with my money, not negotiating, accepting the default, um, not advocating for myself. Like I was always afraid to speak up and ask for more. I didn't want to ruffle any feathers. I was just grateful to like have a seat at the table, so to speak. So that was that first phase of money in my life. Now that I'm older and I'm not struggling anymore, the I still see myself repeating these patterns of, I have spent lots of money on a trip before. And then immediately I'll feel like, did I spend that extra money that I had because I wanted to recreate that pattern of fear and scarcity and like feel panicked and dysregulated, uh, you know? Or did I really feel like, okay, that was intentional. I wanted to to do something that was valuable for me and my partner and, you know, will create a memory that will cherish forever. What I've learned over the years is how do I find the balance, right? So how can I save a little bit and be more thoughtful? And so some of the steps that you can take um, is the first one is uh, learning how to regulate your nervous system is really, really important. Um And there's a lot of, you know, cute little shortcuts that you can take. My favorite one is um, this, I think it's called like a double inhale. I don't know what the technical term is, but um, you take one deep breath into your lungs. And once you've taken that deep breath, you take one other sip on top of that and then you exhale. And so, you know, when you're crying, like crying so hard and you can feel yourself go like, that double breath, that's basically a way to mimic that. So when you're in that state of crying hysterically, your body automatically knows to take that. It it enforces you to so that you can calm down. 
So that's one way to do it. And, all, and we can all take it together. So everybody take one deep breath, fill up your lungs, and then take one sip on top of that. And then let it out. And I would say, you know, when you're about to do your bills, take a moment, take one minute and do three of those and, and even hype yourself up a little bit and say, hey, buddy, you know, we're going to look at some transactions here and you might feel some kind of way about it, dude. You might feel a little shame. You might feel damn proud of yourself. Just know that I've got your back no matter what we see in there. I've got your back. And whatever you feel, those moments, that feeling will pass. So this is all kind of mushy, weird stuff that you can do to feel a little bit better about your finances. But let's get to some practical things. I recommend that everybody- Before you, before you get to the practical things, I want to just recognize that you said the pattern of struggle, which I really, really resonate with. That's a lot of what I write about. My characters are stuck in the pattern of struggle, right? Not able to choose, not able to manage- the two sides of themselves, because this is what I deal with, right? It's sort of my thematic, but I, you said it in a way that really resonated with me because that is exactly what I'm doing. How I grew up, my relationship with money and finances and being a scholarship kid in college and all of that. It is, I'm constantly recreating this pattern of struggle mm -hmm. physically and emotionally and with my part, my husband and it's, so it's, and then you said, regulate your nervous system. And I'm like, yes, Meg and I talk about this all the time. My therapist and I talk about this. I'm trying to teach my daughter how to do it. But talking about it in terms of finances isn't something I ever, ever considered. And it's such a powerful thing to be aware of. So thank you for giving me like the language to even recognize that I'm not managing, right? It's For me, it's balance is a sort of, I don't really know know if that exists but like managing is is more something i can handle like learning how to manage so thank you and like, i love that the the breath uh gets you back to the present right so yeah. if money flashes you your brain into a lot of cacophony that's really past events that aren't even happening right now i love that mm -hmm. that breath will bring you right back to the present to this is what's happening right now you're not 12 years old you're not 10 years old you are an adult woman. You're this age right now. So I love that. Yeah. Um, so let's hear about some of the practical. Wait, I want to I want to stay on this now because now you guys got me feeling stoked uh, about this. I, I've got another tip for you, Lorian. Good, good. And I, I do this. I do this to myself as well. Or this is a practice I have as well. <laughs> you know, every once in a while, I just wake up 2.30 in the morning and think about something I bought that was $200 that I could absolutely afford. But again, this patterning and I'll be like, oh, wake up. Bing, my eyes will pop open and I'll think that's it. Uh, that's what's going to financially ruin me was that really nice artisanal leather belt that I got in Ibiza. Um, and it's not, it's not going to ruin me. And in that moment, what I'll do is I'll just say, hey, buddy, you're safe. You're safe right now. And oftentimes that works. And that shocks me that like, hey, buddy, you're safe right now. It works. So you can also try that. Um, I love that because we are talking about survival instincts are kicking in around the money. And your brain, how your brain learned to survive as a child is by fuzzing out, right? By waking up at two in the morning and overthinking or overstressing or anxiety, appeasement. There's, a, you know, all those survival, uh, it's not just fight or flight, right? It's fight, flight, appease, please, all those things. It's so great because what you're saying to that part of you, which is trying to protect you, is it's okay. We are not, 
we are not in trouble. We are we are not don't need the survival. There's no saber tooth tiger here. So I love that. I had yeah. no idea I was going to feel this vulnerable in this particular topic on this episode. Oh, honey, like, money is always money, money like, is oh, one of the most vulnerable topics in the world. Well, it's so triggering about everything else, right? Because it it really is this foundational relationship you observe when you're a kid, like little. Right. Yeah. Just like how grocery receipts are handled, how the negotiation. Will there be food in the refrigerator yes. is a survival thing. It's a yes. real thing. Yeah. Yeah. Like watching absolutely. my dad put food back to buy a curtain of cigarettes instead and counting out change was like a pivotal moment. It's like a core memory for me in this really creepy way. So you're welcome, everyone, for that really upsetting <laughs> image. Uh, welcome to my turn of my brain. But, you know, that kind of thing that I witnessed feels so when I spend too much money on a trip, I think, oh, my God, am I being like him and choosing the cigarettes over the lettuce? You know, anyway. Yeah. Well, I really. And so the and the cigarette thing is such a powerful, painful image because, you know, in that moment you're thinking, well, my dad values the cigarettes more than he values caring for me. Um, you know, and then that can spiral into a million questions. Am I a burden? Uh, <laughs> what am I worth? You know, like, yeah, that's a that was a tough one. Thank you for being so damn vulnerable. Everybody, I hope you're saying thank you <laughs> along with me. All right. So let's dig into some practical things. Yes, here. practical things. Thank you. One of the most practical pieces of advice I could give you folks is to just simply set aside the time on your calendar every week. Um, to just 20 minutes to care for your financial life. And I know it sounds, I always feel weird recommending this. Like, this is the first step. Yeah, it's actually the first step. So find like a time, what they think about, okay, when, one, are you available to, you know, manage your finances and care for your finances? And then two, like what what would be a high energy time or a time that you can commit to? And then I would put it on your calendar as a recurring event, make yourself unavailable for meetings and interviews and work and activities and really show up for yourself. And you don't have to do anything too outrageous when you get started. I think the very first thing you can do is just gather all your logins, get them all, you know, spend a little bit of time getting your logins in and then maybe maybe find a password manager you want to use. And then that's it. You got your logins. Boom. Week one done. And then maybe week two, you put your toe a little bit more into the water and you're like, we're going to look at the credit card. We're just going to see what I spent over the last week and then start looking. And then the next week, maybe, you know, you look at the savings account or you or you look at an old 401k from an old employer and you think, OK, maybe I should consider rolling that over. You don't you know, again, you don't have to take big strides. I think taking Consistent small steps is a really powerful thing. Those consistent small steps allows you to build trust with yourself. It also allows you to take little actions that will compound over time. And kind of like what I said in the beginning is you get your reps in. And the more you face your finances, the easier it gets, the less scary it gets, the more you're able to, you know, look at it in a way that's not full of fear, right? You get used to it. And again, before your weekly finance time, find a way to regulate your nervous system, whether that's the three deep breaths, blasting a Beyonce song, you know, uh, breathing some essential oils, lighting a candle, going for a run, 
whatever you need to do to kind of get into the right headspace to confront that. Um, and then just sticking to that on a weekly basis. And then here's my shameless, shameless promotion. You can also read Finance for the People, my book, during your weekly finance time and work through those exercises and the pyramid of financial awesomeness. Oh, you have exercises? I sure do. Well, I love exercises. That's awesome. <laughs> I love that's an assignment. Awesome. I mean, I love an assignment. I love a workbook. I love a workbook. Because no, I, I know, really I know that um, in my past experience and in ex- you know, friends and family, I find that the when you don't do that, when you don't have your weekly, you know, look at it, the, the current reality, not, and I know our brains are like, if I don't look at it, it doesn't exist. If I don't look at that debt, it doesn't exist. If I, because if I don't think, oh my God, how are we going to get to December or whatever? But the truth is it does exist. And it's kind of like compound interest. Like it's just growing, whether it's actually growing or not it will eventually come and hit you in the head mm-hmm. and it will stop your ability to keep writing. It will stop your ability to do side gigs or whatever you are doing to foster your dream. I just want to impress upon people that what Paco's talking about, while it may be hard, will foster your dreams of writing or creating or however you're trying to manifest, even though it feels like the opposite. It's going to feel like it's limiting you because you're having to face the limitations. But by facing the limitations, you gain power to take control of it and make choices that then create more space to do what you want to do. Now, that might be travel. It might be right. I don't know. It could be anything. And um, the way that I, I did so many budgets in my life with my husband in our marriage, I, because he's a financial guy, like, how much more money do we have to spend on food this month? And I'd be like, like, we did so much stuff. I did Quicken. I did um, Mint. I did QuickBooks. I did everything. But it was always in the back. So it would come and hit me in the head because I'm not it's not real time. And I, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not trying to do an advertisement here. I'm just using this as an example of real time facing. When I moved over to YNAB, you need a budget. Like it's real time. Like every dollar you have in your account right now has a job. And it's like a game I like to play now with like, it's fun because I have to be like, oh my God, I did buy that $40 thing. And it really should go into Meg's clothing budget. I don't have any more. Where am I going to get it? Well, I'm going to take it out of the kids' clothing budget and uh, some miscellaneous money. But it becomes like a game, but it's real-time money. Like, it's not budgeting for later. And it keeps forcing me to be present with where we are right now in our money. Now, that's not long-term planning. And I let my husband do that because that's what he's really good at. And he loves, like, figuring out, like, how... Because when you're a writer, and we can talk about this, when you're a person who's doing freelance work, you get a lump of money and you feel really rich and like, oh my God, we can go to Paris or whatever it is you're thinking, right? But the truth is it has to last potentially a year or more because you don't know when the next job's coming in and it needs to go towards savings in case there's a strike or whatever. And pay off the credit cards you and racked pay up off the credit trying card before trying to keep yourself alive before that payment came in because of the way deals are structured. Yeah. So how do we, Paco, do you have any advice for people who are living freelance, you know, like chunks of money are are coming in? It's not like a weekly thing. Yeah, this is what we call lumpy cash flow. And you want to try to live your (laughs) life where you can smooth it out. This is really challenging to do. And, you know, I run a bookkeeping agency where the 
where it's not lumpy cash flow, it's pretty smooth cash flow. And then all of my writing stuff is tremendously lumpy. And every time I'm managing it and dealing with it and getting to, um, you know, the end of the period that it's supposed to take me to, I always think, how do these creative people just simply live like this? This is absolutely <laughs> nail biting. So I, if you're out there doing that, I just want to say, I feel you. Um, and so part of this, at, you know, the way that my perspective is, part of it is coming from a bit of experience and part of it is coming from dreaming. So I want to recognize that. Like, I I want this for you, but I understand if it's hard to implement over time. But um, the best thing to do is understand, okay, let's take one step back and say, save for taxes. That's going to be my number one piece of advice for you. I'm not an accountant, uh, but I can be dangerous to myself and others. So we're just going to use some nice rules of thumb here. And I would say, Accountants recommend that you save between 10 and 30% of every dollar you earn for whatever self-employment income taxes you're going to owe come tax time. We can we can just agree on the on the middle and say 20%. But caveat, if you a caveat is reach out to your accountant and say if I save 20% of every dollar I earn, do you think I'll be good to go here? And they'll let you know. So, I would say let's that's the first thing is save 20%. I would open up a tax savings account other than the checking account that your check is coming into because you might have real good intentions. And I recognize that. You might think, I'm going to remember all the checks that came in and how much 20% is. But why tempt yourself with leaving the cash there? Just set up a, a savings account. Here's the good news is there's a lot of, the interest rates are high right now, which means if you open up a high yield money market savings account at an online bank, you can get between four and close to 5% on your money. So that's tax money that you're saving and then you're getting a 4% you know, for the year return, which is nice, right? So that's one really huge step that I think a lot of freelancers, a lot of people who work for themselves, they get slapped, they get kicked in the face, frankly, their, their first year. The other thing is understanding how much money you need to pay yourself each month in order to live your life. And- Meg, I'm really impressed that you are a Y-nabber. That takes a lot of discipline and um, it is a little intense for me. I do not I do not use Y-nab. I use a different system that works for me. Um, I love it but, like a video game. <laughs> right, right. It's gamified. That totally works. It's like it's like Duolingo with language. It's They give me gems and I want the gems. What can I say? I do. Um, <laughs> sweet, sweet gems. Um yeah. So I would say understanding like of that lump sum, you know, how much do you need to pay yourself every month uh, from that lump sum? And then you have to ha kind of look at the cold, hard numbers. If those numbers add up, right? If the math maths, you're in good shape. If the math doesn't math, that's when you, you have to kind of revisit the drawing board and say, okay, how do I need to find a few other freelance jobs to bridge that gap? Do I need to find ways to reduce my expenses to bridge that gap? Can I do both and give myself a little bit more breathing room? Um, again, in I think it's the maybe third or fourth chapter of the book, there's uh, a spending plan that I walk people through. And uh, here's the complicated part is like, first you earn money from your business, right? And then what happens when it goes to personal? Now all this other complication happens because first you get a haircut for that first tax payment, right? So you get a 20% haircut. Then you pay yourself. 
then you're going to give yourself another haircut because now you ought to be, right? You ought to be taking 10, 20, 30% of what you're paying yourself and saving it and investing that. And that is a harsh fucking reality. I'm sorry to tell you guys the truth, but I think the sooner you recognize that that's, you know, as soon as the sooner you recognize how expensive it, I guess it is to be alive and the real cost of also planning for the future, then I think that puts you in a position where you can start to ask yourself, okay, well then what are my moves here? What am I going to do so that I can try to meet my current obligations while also saving for the future as well? I, I hope that answer didn't bum you guys. No, it out. does. It does. And I think what people don't realize is they think, oh, I'm going to become a pro writer and I'm going to make all this money. Someone is going to hand me a script and they're going to give me hundreds of thousands of dollars. And it's like, OK, first of all, 25 percent off the top goes to manager, agent, lawyer gone. Now, like you said, 20 percent taxes gone, 10 percent into the IRA, uh, you know, retirement gone. Right. And now suddenly and savings, another 20 percent gone. The money you actually have to work with is like 30 percent mm-hmm. of that check. And so- really starting to understand that and really own it, because that's the fact. And I will say having the money, which I do immediately, or I've done this because I've been a, I've been doing freelance now for 30 years. Having the money immediately go into what we call the tax, you know, the tax savings is so calming. Because it's there. It's not like April's going to roll around and you're going to freak out. It's there. Having a little bit of money in savings, it's there. And it really does allow you to calm down and turn the fire alarms off in your head so that you can write, so that you can be present because you are you have this discipline of that isn't my money. That's the government's money. Like, goodbye. So I do really highly recommend what she's talking about as an empowerment not as something to take away from you. It's empowering to face the reality of your funding uh, so that you can make the choices. So I highly, I highly, I have had this experience now for decades and it really does help. Yeah. And I, I have an S corp, right? I don't know if you, right. Which is an artist's very good friend um, where I pay myself from it, but I pay employment taxes and federal and state taxes um, before I get the money and, you know, before I pay myself. So that is what soothes me, right? That I, I, the money is, there's some mechanism there taking care of that for me and always having like the tax money, some extra money stashed away somewhere, like in a savings account, just in case, because you never know what happens. I think for a lot of writers and a lot of artists, the strike hit so many people hard because we are not that great at long-term planning, Meg obviously has some magic thing with this app. Um, But it hit a lot of us hard because it wiped us out pretty fast. And now trying to recover from that and the industry isn't quite back doing what it's supposed to be doing and it won't be the same. Um, And so trying to figure out what those side gigs are, right? People are getting part-time jobs. People are teaching, um, drawing, doing other kinds of writing and sort of how that money comes in and doesn't, it's like a smaller lumpy lumpy cash flow and managing that with your time plus still being able to write plus manage family because so many of us have families and we bought a house when we had the good money and you know it's but it all feels it all gets so tangled up and overwhelming Um, well and I think when you're freelance like that either teaching or whatever you're doing you do have to kind of sell yourself now in a different way and I think um you have some advice about that right in terms of 
that kind of um, what sets you apart. If you do need to go out now and freelance to make up the the excess, the the the, the drought part, how, can you talk us to us about that? Yeah, I think it's really going to depend on the kind of business that you're running or the kind of freelancer that you are. But I think the climate of today is, unfortunately, you really do have to foster a couple of things that I think are really, really important. Perspective that I have about how the world works is that every opportunity is attached to an individual. Opportunities are not flying through the air that you can just grab. It's oftentimes through a connection. And so, you know, audience building, which makes me laugh because, you know, it kind of can sound all marketing-ish and gross, but I put out a weekly newsletter. I love talking to people through the newsletter. I think it's a really fun medium and people write back to me. And so I've, you know, built relationships with readers. And I recently started to reach out to some of the people who have replied and said, like, do you want to just get on a call, chop it up, shoot the shit? And that's been really interesting. I've met colleagues, people who have had like, you know, 10 years of professional debt collection experience. And I'm like, teach me what you know, like, what should I warn the readers about? And so that's been very fruitful for me in terms of getting my writing out there and showing the world that I can write consistently. I, the reason why I got a book deal was because I was blogging and putting out this weekly email newsletter. And then the other thing that I've started to really focus on is just connecting with other professionals, taking the time to connect people who I think should be connected. And then when somebody asks me if they want to connect with me or if a friend wants to connect me with them, because maybe, I don't know, they're looking for a literary agent or they're, um, or they have a literary agent and now they're going to pitch their book and they just want to, you know, shoot the shit. And then I'm happy to take those calls. And what I've learned is like so much work will come from these really soft connections. And if you're willing I think a lot of us, we just want to help people, right? So if we hear something for a person that we recently talked to, we're, we're going to make that connection. I, I think kind of getting back to the pre-2020 energy of, of connecting more is probably a really, really helpful way to get your name out there, to remain top of mind, to find ways you can help other people and then they can help you in return. That This advice feels very like <laughs> kind of old school, but it remains very very well, you're, you're making friends, right. right? You're like finding people who you believe in, who you connect with. And then you say, Hey, I met this other person. I think you'd really connect with and then say and, yes to all meetings. And once yep. you do that, you know, you're going to just like writers are going to have to pitch an idea. You in a way are going to have to pitch yourself, right? Mm -hmm. Like this is what I have to offer. Be that because it's a book deal or because you're going to want a teaching gig or who knows, it could be a million things. Um, how can you talk about how freelancers can figure out what sets them apart? Sure. I think there's a few things that you can think about. One that has been, it's either what you do or how you do it. I think when you look at your process, you're either doing something that's really unique, right? Like who's doing something that's really unique that we can use and as, as an example, Oh, I hate to talk shit, but this one is really silly. And I saw it on LA Times Instagram recently, but this is really unique. There's a new workout where you're like drumming and boxing at the same time. I mean, I laughed at it, but here I am talking about it because <laughs> that's right. And I'm like, what's that? Yeah, there's like, and I'm like, no, 
exactly sounds, okay. much like my hippie childhood. I'm like, are there, <laughs> okay, are there goats involved? I can't, I can't even, no thanks. <laughs> I didn't see any goats, but okay. You guys are showing both sides of the spectrum and I love this. I love this. So that's really unique drumming and boxing. Like what the hell? Okay. So th- what they're actually doing is unique. And then the other side is how you're doing it. Like, you know, you're, you're, so for me, I think that's why I have been successful is because I'm coming into the finance space. I run a bookkeeping, I run a bookkeeping agency, and it's called Hell Yeah Bookkeeping. That's already so weird on its face. It's going to repel the right people. It's going to attract all the people who think accounting firms with four last names are too stuffy. They're grandpa's accounting firms. I'm scared of that. They don't get me. They're suits, right? So right off the bat, that branding, um, it definitely is going to it's going to set me apart. So how, what you're actually doing or, or how you're doing it to speak more on that. Like I'm, I'm serving creatives, mostly creative professionals. That doesn't mean I'm not help. I'm not going to not help others. Right. So finance for the people, the book I think is much more approachable and it, it's for everyone, but I wrote it with creatives in mind. Right. I drew the illustrations in the book, the language that I use, the stories that I tell the entire approach is like, I get it. You guys, I love you guys. I love you creative professionals, but you're like my feral cat that I feed in my yard. <laughs> Cosmo. I have to just approach you. I slowly. feel seen yeah. and attacked yeah. all at once. <laughs> I just, you know, I got a slow blink, let you know, buddy, I'm not going to capture you or anything. Here's your, here's your food. Here's my, here's my offering to you. And I'll, I'll see you tomorrow. You know, I get it. I get where you guys are coming from. And so my approach is reflective of that. And And I'm really, you know, the other way to think about it is why did I start serving creatives? It was because I am creative myself. I'm a musician. And every time I would go to a dinner party, it was a room full of creative people, people in production, people who are writers, people who are musicians, and then random finance person, me. And so it was just natural. I'm already swimming in these waters. The question that I was trying to ask answer was, is there a way that I can serve this community that it can be sustainable and that is a little bit outside of what is like the typical financial planning firm of you need a million dollars or I don't want to fuck with you kind of energy. And so what you're witnessing with, with my career and the whole ecosystem that I've built is really just trying to answer, you know, see if that hypothesis could be proven. I think the big picture of what you're talking about really is sustainability, which is a question we as writers and creatives are asking ourselves all the time. Is this sustainable? Is the lumpy lumpy money flow sustainable? And so you're giving us strategies to try to answer that question. Is it sustainable? And how do you move forward on that track? And it's a lot of work. I mean, it sounds like a lot of work, just like being a writer, just like being a creative. No one's going to reach down and be like, here's the answer. It's we have to actually set the goal, the beacon, what do we want? And then step by step, launch ourselves into act two to get to that want. And in that act so, two, be very present. And like yes. you said, come back every week and start to yes. learn your own habits, what you do with your money, what your money is, and start seeing it as power instead of something to so take your away belief from system you. is eventually Good. confronted. Yes, it is. Welcome so to the scared, lava. And then you're going to go plummet down to the bottom of act two, and then you're going to finally learn it. And you're going to change your life through what you've learned. I did. Two, I'm right? a wine-abber now. I yeah, was the person okay. who never, never, ever, ever, ever wanted to look at it. Never would. It was always a fight. And now I'm a wine-abber. So it okay. can happen. Now, Jeff, well, next, I know that you- Next have, gone on the journey. 
I've gone on the journey. I have. I haven't yet stepped into I am into a testament. Two. It works. I, I'm still uh, an act one. <laughs> Jeff, you had a question. I want to make sure we get that in. I think as an extension to what we were just talking about, Paco, with um, creating our niche as a freelancer, first of all, I think it is such good advice, not only as a freelance creative, but also for your writers who are listening and thinking about your pitches. What are you pitching and how are you pitching it? That's just like really great advice for creatives in general. But um, I think like price setting is something that freelancers can have complicated relationships with. And we talk about like identity and worthiness. I already think creatives who feel weird about money and maybe unworthy to be earning money. I know for me, when I tell people I'm a writer or creative, I hear like, that's going to be hard. That And so I'd reinforce that in my own life and sometimes make it hard for myself. But I'm rambling here. What I want to ask you is, what is your advice for freelancers who might have trouble with price setting and recognizing their own worth? Because like my business friends are like, yeah, I charge 300 bucks an hour because, you know, and I feel this difference sometimes between creatives and like traditional sort of white collar people. That's a great question, Jeff. I appreciate that. So, you know, it is a little tricky because I am a business person who's also creative. So, you know, it stopped me if I, if you think that this advice is too hard nosed business, but the way that I, there's a couple of, there's a couple of things to think about. So the way that I think about finances and pricing and this whole world, you're going to, you already know this, but it's like pedaling a bike, right? And one side of the the pedaling is your wounding, your emotions, how you feel about money. And the other side is what's practical, right? Running experiments, knowing what the market value is knowing what the market even looks like, right? And you have to figure out the balance. And I think true progress is that pedaling. So I think you do have to take the time and and think, why, why do I think I don't deserve this? Or is my low prices a result of maybe the fact that I don't want to confront, have confrontational confrontational conversations about money, right? You're already assuming the objections to a high price. So rather than going through the dance of negotiation, I'll just, I'll just give the price a haircut and then, you know, accept it. Um, what else could you be going through on the emotional side? Definitely the worthiness. Um, so figuring that out, I think is a big, big piece. And the thing about healing folks is it's a spiral. So you think you've, you think you've figured it out. You think you've healed that wound. Things are going great you are going to be confronted with that same issue. It's, it is like a, a, a movie. It is like a book. It is going to be an overarching, overarching theme in your life. So I think once you kind of surrender to that and realize as you progress, you're just going to reach it at new high levels. Um, it won't be a surprise when it slaps you in the face, you know, 18 months later. So that's one thing to think about. The other thing to think about, I know a lot of creative people think like this, they think this is this is joyful for me. Um, what a gift and a delight that I get to be creative for my living. And in a way, it's it's easier for me, right? It comes natural to me. And I think a lot of creative people undervalue things that they're good at. They don't recognize that it's very, 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 very difficult for other people in other positions. Um, like television media is such a chef's kiss, beautiful example of this. Cause you have a bunch of suits who couldn't figure out how to do, you know, write a script, come up with a, a novel idea. And, you know, they are the ones 
who are in charge and you think, okay, these are the gatekeepers, but recognize they cannot do what you can do, right? They need you. And so from a pricing perspective, the way that I like to think about it and the way that I invite you to think about it is charge what, charge the price that matches the value to the end user, right? So let's say like I'm fast at, at bookkeeping. I can handle it really quickly. Uh, I'm not going to just charge an hourly rate and kind of screw myself because I'm fast, because I have experience. I'm not going to penalize myself for that. I'm going to charge a price that equals the value to the end user. And so I might go with the flat rate project fee. And what they're really paying for is all the mistakes that I've made over the decades, all the shortcuts that I've learned, my expertise working with hundreds and thousands of creatives, and you know everything I've gained looking on the inside of hundreds of thousands of, not hundreds of thousands, thousands, let's say, of, of small businesses. And so thinking about it like that, I think is a good way to kind of make progress on the, on the bike of pricing, we'll call it. Well, and I think that's what people, you know, writers, emerging writers think, oh, I get an agent, so they'll get me the job and then they'll make me a writer. But in fact, uh, the very big thing that agents do is exactly what you just discussed, you described, whereas they're the voice for you of what you're of. They know the marketplace. They know what they can charge. They know what's happening in that studio. They know your experience level, what other people of that experience level are getting because they've got a big agency. They're the ones saying to me, no, Meg, you can ask for that much. And I'm like, I know, but then the expectation is going to be so high. They're just like, this is the marketplace. And, you know, it's it, they, they are this they are the they are that voice in my head because I cannot do that for myself. Um, and that's why agents are there. It is to get you job and get you work. I'm not saying that, but a very big part of it. And what I think like my particular agent loves why he does his job because he loves making a deal right is to be that person for you to do that. And it is harder when it's yourself. Like, let's say I'm teaching or consulting or whatever. That is harder for me to be the one to stand up and say, I'm worth that. Um, so that's just my own struggle that I have to work on. But I do think agents do a lot of that uh, yeah. for us. That's why we have them. I do also think that there is a fear with creatives and probably particular, I know with women and probably with people of color um, that um, if you ask for too much, they're going to say, never mind. Yeah. That we forget that there is actually a negotiation that is expected to happen. But if we say 100 and they're like, oh, we were thinking more like 60. So we're taking the offer back. And you're like, wait, no, I meant like 80. Can we meet at 80? Right. That's the natural rhythm of it. But there's this fear that if you think too highly of yourself, if you ask for too much, people are going to be like, "Ooh, gross. How dare you? Instead of, oh, OK, she thinks she's worth it because we cannot. We tell the story, like you said at the beginning, we're telling the story of how people perceive us based on our belief systems and our own values, which will just get in our way, which is why an agent is worth it, why having a, a, a lawyer at the very least, someone who can negotiate on your behalf so that you don't have to get involved in that mucky stuff as a writer. you know. But I mean, you person, still get involved because they're going to come to you if, they, yes, if they're good and worth you, their salt to say, of course. this is where we are. We want to go back hard and and ask for this. And I'd be like, oh, yes, yeah. Oh, yeah. Cause I have yeah. the same fear. Like they're just going to walk away. Yeah. They're just going to be like, yeah. okay, screw you. But they're so used to the game that they're playing 
Um, and in a weird way, now my agent has never said this. We've never had this conversation, but I do think that there's a sense of um, that that value, right? Like if you actually go too low, you'll make them nervous. Yes, <laughs> you'll yep. actually make the buyer nervous. Yes, about okay. you because wait, you don't even value you. Why? Mm-hmm. Are you I not very a, good at this? <laughs> I have an example that I like to use called the one dollar oyster. Uh, depending on like what you think a good value would be, right? Some people hear, you know, oh, $1 oyster. That sounds like a good deal, right? But when I hear $1 oyster, I think I'm going to shit my pants. No, thank you. Like those can't be. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. No. You don't want to be the $1 oyster. Yeah. No, I love that. I'm not a $1 oyster. There you no. go. And, you know, when I, we're talking to emerging writers, if you're doing your first deal, you really should have an agent or a lawyer, somebody to help counsel you do this stuff. So if we're talking about actually writing deals, do not do this by yourself. Don't because you don't know the marketplace and you don't know stuff. It's worth the money. Like Lorian said, if we're talking about side gigs and freelance gigs, I think it can be, I don't know, like try it. Like, <laughs> yeah. you know, what, what do you think about that? Like at some point you're yeah. just going to have to say, I'm trying this. You can always, you know, you can always, I think, lower. It's harder to go higher. Like you can Absolutely. always step your price back. Um, uh, and, you know, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Pricing and business, it's it's just an experiment, right? Like in fifth grade, I learned the scientific method and we had to do a science project where we had a hypothesis, right? So we can take the same approach. My hypothesis is that I can charge this writing outlet, $500 for a 500 word uh, essay on something, right? Okay, great. Now I'm going to go to the plate. I'm going to gather the data. And so you pitch your thing and then you tell them the price and then you get the data back. Maybe you pitch to a couple of outlets. Maybe you pitch to 10 outlets and five of them say yes and five of them try to negotiate down. Okay, great. Now you have a sense of what's going on in the market and who's willing to play that and pay that. And if not, um, if they're negotiating down, one really, really important thing to consider is if you lower your price, you have to take something away. You can't just lower your price and offer the same service or the same product or the same word count. You have to take some of it away. And that way it starts to feel like that negotiation is fair. The other thing that one of my friends told me about pricing and how she finds kind of the floor is she she asks herself, at what price will I resent this work? And that will be your floor. Anything below that, it's like, why even bother? So I think those are some good frameworks to kind of view pricing. I think that's a really important perspective. You know, I get asked to consult sometimes and uh, I charge a bit of money for it because I'm fucking good at it and I love it. Right. Mm -hmm. But some people can't afford it. And so I say, okay, which is really hard for me because I want to mm-hmm. help everybody. You know, I want everybody because I love it. It's, it inspires me. But at the same time, I I, I would resent it. Yeah. I well, because it is, it is hours of your life that you're not yes. doing other money earning things, which to me yes. is what I have to remind myself. Like, yes. Jeff, did you have another question? I want to make sure we get uh, if you have any other questions. I no, I think I'm good. I just want to say like, thanks, Paco. One of the things that you said I want to really highlight that I thought was so insightful was just because we like what we're doing doesn't mean we have to reduce our rate. Like I hear people talk about jobs they hate and they feel so entitled to their big salary because they fucking hate what they're doing. Mm -hmm. So I like just want to echo what you said, which is like, 
we don't need to lower our salary just because we like the freelance we have. We can feel entitled to also charging a certain value for what we do, even if we like it. I think that's that's like a very interesting and specific insight you offered. So thank you yeah, for sharing that. Of course. And just a little bit more on that. It's like, if you like it, then you're going to, you're going to keep doing it. You're going to get better at it. It's like a snowball effect. And if you like it, then you're probably not a shitty person to deal with when we're working on a project on the thing that you like and that snowballs as well. And so, yeah, I hope, I hope you creatives out there who are struggling with that can really internalize that because that will really, that can really change the trajectory of your pricing and change how you value your work in the world. And, you know, that's just one little building block to your own financial stability. I love it. Thank you so much for being here. We always end every podcast with the same three questions. Um, So I'll start. What brings you the most joy when it comes to working with finances or creative people and finances, what brings you the most joy? Hmm. When kind of like what Jeff just said, when they have this little aha moment where something like clicks in their brain and they just feel less, you know, worried or scared or nervous and they feel empowered and energetic and excited. Love it. So, same topic. What pisses you off about being someone who works with creatives and finances? Mm. It really pisses me off when I see somebody who just doesn't really value their work and their worth in the world. And it pisses me off when I can see a lot of that is internalized narratives that maybe they just absorbed from media, from parents not supporting them. I don't like to see somebody who's lacking confidence in the financial arena. That really pisses me off when they don't have that sense of confidence. So I think that really drives a lot of my work. Mm, good answer. Okay, Paco, picture you're in your car during rush hour traffic and you look out the window and you see 24-year-old Paco on her bike sweating and panicking as she's trying to get to her job. You roll down the window what piece of advice do you today, Paco, give to that 24-year-old Paco on her bike in rush hour traffic? Heal your wounds. Mm. That's great. Beautiful. That's great and super easy. No problem. <laughs> <laughs> in just two hours or less for yeah. a small <laughs> price of $16.99. <laughs> and then 24-year-old you, 24-year-old you goes, oh, yeah, totally on it. So easy. Thank you so much. What I love about it is if everybody today just did the one thing she said, which is weekly sit down with your finances for just a half an hour, it will start to move. It will start to bring up the wounds. Yes, it will. But now you know what you're dealing with, right? The the kind of push it aside isn't going to help you deal with your wounds. They're not going anywhere. They're actually working and creating, like you said, narratives that you don't even know you're acting on. So mm-hmm. I think the simplest things can help you start yeah. on that. Trail. And I really like what you said about you broke it down into these very simple steps, right? Look, get your passwords. Look at that one credit card bill. And I think that's so parallel to our careers as writing when we're working on a script. We're not just going to sit down and solve the whole financial crisis of our being. We're not just going <laughs> to sit down and like generate this amazing, brilliant script. Exactly. It takes little steps, right? Yeah. Break down your character. How old do you think your character is? 
what are they mad about? What are they happy about? Right? Like each time you sit down, you're just taking a little step further into the project so that at some point you start to have those little aha moments along the way. But it's about patience and doing the reps and doing the work. Um, and being present with yourself. Yeah. Well, that so is great. actually the work between writing and finances, just to be present with yourself. Paco, thank you so much you. for being here. You clearly inspired us. Likewise, yes. actually. I, I'm so happy to have been on this show and to have exchanged energy with all of you and everybody listening, you know, sending you love, man. I love it. I'm Paco, so glad we could chop it up. Yeah. Yes. Paco, if you just could give our listeners like the 22nd, like how to get more on you, that would be great because you have so many fun outlets. Like I love your Instagram, you know? Thank you. Appreciate that. Well, if you want to hang out with me and receive things from me on a regular basis, absolutely the best way is to sign up for my email newsletter called The Nerd Letter. I send it out every Wednesday and it's chock full of things I'm working on, things I find interesting. It's really meant to educate you and inspire you and just keep you, you know, remind you that uh, you should be doing your weekly finance time. So you can sign up for it at thehellyagroup.com. The last thing is because I'm on a podcast, I also have a podcast called Weird Finance and you can listen to that wherever podcasts, wherever you listen to podcasts, wherever you're listening to my voice right now. <laughs> oh, I can't believe we should have mentioned that sooner. It's a fantastic podcast. Yeah. Highly recommend it. Go over. There's there's she does so many amazing topics. Thank you Great. guys. Yeah. And one of the things I just want to say, one of the things I love about your work, Paco, is as you've probably heard throughout the show, like things like lumpy cash flow and like weird finance, you just have like a really specific point of view with the way you conduct your work. And we talk about with writers, that's the same way that you'll find success in your voice is by like kind of leaning into your quirks and your specificity. And Paco draws all these illustrations. And I, I just love your voice around how you conduct your business. And it's a fun model for us as writers to look at. Your unique point of view is a great way to approach your work. So thank you for what you do. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. You've really made my day today. I'm so glad. Thanks so much for tuning into The Screenwriting Life. For more support, check out our Facebook group where both emerging writers and professionals are asking questions and finding support. And please consider writing us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts so more folks can find the show. And remember, you are not alone and keep writing and checking your finances. <laughs>